maybe we'll just pack up and head home. I don't need to preach after that. That is an old sermon from years gone by. I've watched that a, a ton of times, and it never gets old. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit this morning. But um, just as as way of intro, last week we started a new sermon series. And uh, you can see it on the front of your program and, and through our, our, our pre-service slides. But we started a new series, The Bible Doesn't Say That. So we're kind of looking at some phrases that, that, that people usually say are in the Bible that actually aren't. Uh, what's kind of cool about this video that we just watched, that old sermon, all of those phrases are in the Bible. So that's, it's kind of cool to know, or at least those ideas are in the Bible. But we've been looking at, we started last week looking at some phrases that, that a lot of people say are in the Bible but actually aren't. And so to kind of get the theme of this series, to, to kind of get us headed in where we're going with this, the, the, the reason we're doing this is to know God's word better. To, to, to see how powerful the truth of God's scripture is for us and to see the vibrancy that it actually holds for our lives. So we're, we're in a way celebrating what God's word really says. Um, and, and, and some of these phrases, uh, uh, they're, they're not bad. We talked about a few of them last week, like uh, uh, cleanliness is, is, is close to godliness. You know, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, I like my friends to take a shower and, and, and stay clean. But, but the, the phrases aren't necessarily bad. But, but the reason we're doing this is that if we kind of inaccurately summarize Scripture or even like insert our own meaning or, or, or kind of twist it just a little bit, and, and even if we just boil it down to catchphrases, we're going to quickly miss the depth that's in Scripture. We're going to miss the, the deep things that God wants us to get. So we're kind of, in a way, when we're celebrating through this series, we're going to dig into the deep things that God wants us to get out of his word. When I started thinking about this, I think last week I compared it to eating just the chocolate on the outside of a Reese's. Here's another way to think about it. I thought of it this way. Uh, this week, I thought of it this way. If you go to a buffet and maybe have like just a taste of one of the things on the buffet and then you don't eat anything else. It's like getting that taste, like, like you should not leave a buffet hungry, right? There's something wrong if you leave the buffet and you're still hungry. So, so when we boil it down to just these phrases and we don't really look at where God has taken us or what, what he has for us, we're, we're, it's like we're going to the buffet and, and not getting full. We're just kind of chewing on the outsides of it. So that's kind of the, the point, the, the reason uh, why we're doing this and, and, and where we're going. And, and again, these sayings aren't all wrong. In fact, I think it's good to even look at maybe where some of these sayings came from. Look at the original intention, because there's an intention behind some of these sayings that's, that's still biblical. But our job is to know the Bible behind the saying, not just the saying, but our job and what the, the point of this series is to know the, the biblical basis behind some of these sayings, or even to see maybe where they go off the rail. So this morning, we're going to move along in our series. And um, if you have your program, you've probably gotten the, uh, the, the, the clue into what we're talking about this morning. But we're going to look at the phrase, God moves in mysterious ways. Have you ever heard that? God moves in mysterious ways. Maybe you've even kind of used that phrase yourself. But, but this statement comes from an old hymn. Anybody like singing old hymns? I like old hymns. 
We don't sing a lot of them here, but sometimes we throw them in. I think Ben throws them in a little bit. But, but I like old hymns sometimes. But this idea that God moves in mysterious ways actually comes from a hymn from 1774, right around the, about the time our nation became uh, independent. And the words are from a guy named William Cowper, and, and, and his original song says, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. I looked into this a little bit more, and there's a lot of story about this guy, and, and a, lot of our, a lot of the old hymnologists wrote songs out of, out of different feelings and different reasons. This guy, I think he struggled with depression, and, 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 but, but, but God came into his life, and it was interesting to read that in 1764, so 10 years before he wrote the hymn, he found a Bible laying on a bench, like a park bench, and he started reading it, and he became a Christian. Talk about mysterious I don't know if the song specifically came from that, but he, he, had, he probably had some interesting, mysterious experience. And, and I, I don't doubt that that can happen. In fact, sometimes you hear of people just picking up God's word and they start reading it. And the power of that is able to change their hearts and lives. It's where we find the gospel. But for him, his, his coming to the Lord, being a follower of Christ, was something mysterious. You see, we usually use this phrase in, in a number of circumstances. We might say it when something inexplicable happens, when kind of a, a, a miracle or, or something we can't explain under our own terminology. So sometimes we use that. You know, you, something happens and we're like, yeah, I think God moves in mysterious ways. On the other hand, we might also use this statement to blame God if something bad happens. Might use it when something bad happens to somebody we know, and we say, you know what, God, we don't understand. God moves in mysterious ways. Or I think the worst way we can take this and use it is, is we can kind of use it to say God is unknowable. We can say he's so mysterious that we shouldn't even seek to know him. He's so unknown to us that, that, that we can't know him, so we should not seek him. But I think this morning as we look into God's word, we're going to see a little bit more of the truth that might be behind this. So if you would turn to Isaiah 55, we're going to be in Isaiah 55. If you borrowed a Bible this morning, it's actually page 602. So I was giving, giving you a little bit of help if you want help. 602 in, those, in our handout Bibles. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 55, going old school this morning. Or Old Testament, I should say. Isaiah 55. We're going to look at Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. And as you're getting there, I'll start reading. Verse 6, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So as we start to dig into this passage this morning, we're in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Prophets kind of did two things. Number one, they warned God's people. They would tell them when something bad was about to happen, but they also painted a picture of hope. 
So if you, if you, if you know much about uh, the, Israel, the history, history of the Israelite people and, and how they were kind of chosen, the story of Moses, Moses, they were chosen and they were given the promised land and, 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 and in some ways for many years had seen the favor of God. Well, they started kind of rebelling against God. And, and what some of these guys come in and do is they warn them and they say, you know what, because of your rebellion, God's not going to keep his blessing on you anymore. So a lot of what Isaiah writes about is this idea of calamity, this idea of, of God kind of taking his blessing away, taking his hand off of these Hebrew people. But at the same time, he comes in, and, and like here in Isaiah 55, he's providing a picture of hope. In the, the midst of their calamity, he's pointing to a picture of hope. When we start looking at this, uh, in many ways, the Israelites were probably kind of puzzled. They're like, yo, we thought we were God's chosen people. And, and God is clear to them, like, the reason that I'm kind of taking my hand off is because you guys have rebelled. But they're kind of like, you know, we're, we're his chosen people. He's given us this awesome land to live in, and, and our enemies have not been able to do anything against us. And why all of a sudden is God allowing our enemies to come? How, how come, how, how, why has God allowed foreign neighbors to come in in this land that he's given us? He's allowed them to occupy it. And why has God allowed them to enslave us and control us and, and take us away from this land? So in a lot of ways, the book of Isaiah is bleak. It's like there's no hope. But in Isaiah 55, God is speaking through Isaiah to provide hope to his people. He's painting this picture of hope. So from this, if, if we're looking at this phrase this morning, God moves in mysterious ways. I think as we start to look at what Isaiah is telling us here, Instead of saying God moves in mysterious ways, I think we should kind of change it. We should say, make God's ways your way. See, the Israelites were trying to do it their own way. And the theme that we're getting from Isaiah here, instead of saying God's ways are mysterious, he's saying, make God's way your way. He's telling these Hebrew people, do it my way. Don't do it your way. So I want to dive into our passage a little bit more and, and kind of see how Isaiah gets us there. We're going to push in this morning and see exactly how he gets us to this idea. So let's start reading in verse 8. We're going to kind of, kind of settle on verses 8 and 9 for a second, and then we're going to work back through the, the whole passage. So uh, looking at verse 8 again, this is through the words of Isaiah, this is what God is saying to his people. He's saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He continues to speak. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. So I think as we start reading right here uh, from these verses, we can see that there is certainly an aspect of God that is a mystery. So when we start looking at this phrase that God moves in mysterious ways, it's not all wrong. There is, an, there is aspects of God that are a mystery. In a lot of ways, God is, in a, is a mystery. In verse 8, he's saying this, my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's why he's a mystery. His heavens are higher than the earth. In a way, Isaiah is saying that humankind, he's saying we, us, we have a hard time sometimes getting our head around God. 
We have a hard time getting our, our heads around the idea of God. On the one hand, he's saying that the thoughts of God are incomprehensible. Our mind just doesn't operate on the same level that God's does. So he's saying the things that God thinks about, the things that, 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 that he's working through, and, and, and the way that he's orchestrated things, and, and, and just the way that God thinks is incomprehensible to us as humans. I mean, think about it, the thoughts of an almighty God that has created everything. I can't even create a good sandwich, let alone the heavens and the earth, right? Thoughts of an almighty God, the idea that, that God controls all of history. I can't even keep my two kids in line. And he's, he's controlled all of history. And the fact that he holds the plans for every person ever to walk the face of the earth. Isaiah is saying that these ideas, these thoughts of God are way beyond, beyond what we can wrap our heads around. We can't even start thinking about being able to think about what God does. At the same time, the fact that an all-powerful God would show mercy and love to a rebellious people so far out of the realm of our understanding as well. So on the one hand, his thoughts are beyond anything we could ever think about. But, but, but his mercy, we can't even understand how he can be so merciful. I mean, I'm the guy that like, man, I, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I start thinking all those bad words I shouldn't be thinking and like what finger I shouldn't use, you know, and like, like immediately I start going, to, how am I going to get revenge on this person? If someone does me wrong, I want to get back at them, and I'm mad, and, and I want to do, do whatever I can to, to, to get back or hurt them. But it's saying that in all his power and, and with people that rebel and that people have left him, he shows mercy, and he loves them. We can't comprehend that. We cannot understand how a perfectly sinless God can willingly love, and not only love, but pursue. He comes after us. When we run from God, he comes after us, and he, uphold, he upholds us, he helps us, and most importantly, he forgives us. That's unimaginable. That's not part of our nature. We don't do that naturally. And Isaiah is saying those things are out of our realm of understanding. So in, in this, from our original statement, God moves in mysterious ways. I, there is some truth. But when we're looking at Isaiah 55, we can find our first point. If you're taking notes, you can fill in the blank in your program. But majesty begins with mystery. Majesty begins with mystery. Our worship, our adoration of who God is, has to start out of a place where we don't understand him. Because if we understand him, there's nothing left to worship. If we fully grasp who he is, there's nothing left to worship. There's no majesty left to give him. See, we can never fully understand God. We will never fully understand God. He is wholly other. He is not a man. He is, he is a God totally different than us. And we cannot fully understand who he is and what he does, what he thinks. But at the same time, this keeps us humble, right? This keeps us kind of in, in the place of where we should be. It drives our adoration. It gives us that reason to worship. As I started thinking about this, and, and even yesterday as I was out, uh, Grayson and I, well, I took the whole family. Courtney sat in the truck, but we went hunting yesterday. And I think this aspect is super easy for us to get in Montana. 
There's not an easier place, I don't feel like, or maybe Wyoming or Colorado or Idaho or something, but, but we've, got, we've got mountains and rivers and vast expanses and, and clouds that are beautiful. And like, like we can understand this idea of majesty and the mystery in that. Man, it's such an easy place to get the, the, the grandeur of God. I think mountains are awesome. Like, I could stare and look at mountains. And the reason I can stare and look at mountains is because I think as I start to think of all the, the canyons and the, the, the creeks and the trees on there, you know, the, how, the size of the trees, the number of the trees, how many springs are on the side of that, that hill, and, and just how long it would take me to even get over a mountain. It blows my mind. I can't comprehend it. We can't get our mind around the size of a mountain. That's why we stand in wonder when we look at it. It's the same with the ocean. You stand at the ocean and you cannot see the other side. You can't imagine the depth of that ocean. But we're reminded that God created those mountains. God created that massive tree. He created the, the clear blue skies and those clouds up there. And when we think about that, his depths are unsearchable. The mystery of God drives our understanding of his majesty, of how awesome he is. To apply this just a little bit, hopefully you're already doing this, but take a moment and ponder the awesomeness of God. Think about that this morning. That you can't ever fully know him, that you won't that you can look at all these things he's created and stand in wonder and awe and think about how amazing our God is. His vastness and his power compares to nothing we, we, we know. And that's exactly why we worship him. We worship him because there are aspects of him that are a mystery. There's aspects of him we'll never understand. There's aspects of him we can stand in awe of. Man, I think of like, we just had Lila a few weeks ago and, and that miracle of, of, of a baby coming to life out, out of the womb and the, the air hitting their lungs and just doesn't even have to be something massive, but the miracle of life. We stand in awe of God and that drives our worship. So I think our first encouragement from this and when we're looking at this statement, first encouragement is to, is to be amazed by our God to be wowed, to be humbled by who he is and what he's doing. But the passage this morning moves on. If we step back a few verses, we see our second point this morning. So look at starting in verse 6 again with me. Verse 6, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Here Isaiah is adding to this awesomeness of God. So we're talking about this, this unability, inability to understand God's thoughts and, and the way that he does things, the way that he works, and, and, and to be in, in, in just standing in awe and awesomeness of who God is. And Isaiah adds to this. He's saying, not only is our God mysterious, not only is, is, is he big and outside of our thoughts and, and thinking about things that we don't even comprehend, but he's also knowable. 
He's saying, look for God. Isaiah is saying, look for God. Seek him. Make God's way your way. And the foundation for this is our second point, if you're taking notes this morning. Even though we may not fully understand God, God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. There's profound truth behind this. This is, this is huge. In fact, this, this is where Christianity differs from, from many other religions. We have this, this unimaginable, awesome, powerful creator of the universe that we worship. But he, he wants us to seek him. And he's seeking us. He wants us to know him, to get to know him, to follow him, to, to, to be actively in communion with him. God wants us to know him, and that is profound. This is kind of where the statement gets off track. When we're looking at the fact that God moves in mysterious ways, there's an implication that God cannot be known. But what Isaiah is asserting here is you can, you can know God, you can know someone without knowing everything about him. You can know someone without knowing everything about him. I, I think of my kids again. My kids have, you know, Grayson's 18 months and Lila's three weeks old. And I, I know my kids, right? I'm seeing their personality develop. But there's aspects where, like, Grayson shows me a new aspect of who he is every day. So I know him, but I don't know everything about him. Think of your spouse. I think one of the reasons that you love your spouse is because you find something new about him every day that amazes you. You find something new that, that, that reminds you of, of, of why you fell in love with them. It's crazy how you can, you can live with someone in the same, under the same roof in the same house and not know everything about them. But you know that person better than anybody else that you might know. So you can know somebody without knowing everything about them. That's what Isaiah is pushing us to. I'd say it's even more like this with God. We will actually spend eternity, even though we know him and we can follow him, we will spend eternity getting to know him better. I think that's an aspect of heaven. We'll spend eternity learning more and more and more about who God is. Just like with our wife or our kids or somebody that we're learning more about, even though we know them, that depth of knowledge can continue to grow. See, Isaiah is painting a cosmic balance here. On the one hand, he's talking about an immensely awesome God whose thoughts make no sense to us. And he's even saying that, that if we tried to know God, it would be like trying to hold a teacup up to a fire hydrant. Anybody ever tried that? Like hold a teacup up and open the fire hydrant. How much of that water are you going to collect? Not, not very much, right? I don't even have a teacup. I'll have to go find a teacup first. But the point is, like, like, that flood of water coming out of there, that's like trying to understand God. Man, we could try to collect it all, but we're not. So on the one hand, Isaiah is painting this, this picture, but it's a cosmic balance. This big picture of who God is, but, but in the balance of thing, in, in, in the balance of things, in all of God's immensity, God seeks us. God comes after us and wants us to be known. So there's this balance. Even though it'd be like this teacup in a fire hydrant, there's no possible way we would collect all that water, all that knowledge of God, even though he's so immensely beyond us, God seeks us and wants us to seek him. 
He wants us to come after him and to find his truth and his knowledge and who he is. What I I really like about this picture is the the more that he seeks us and the more that that we seek him, the more we're going to want to know him. The more that we dive into his knowledge, the more that we look at his word and look at his truths for our lives, the more we're going to want to know, just like with our spouse. The profound truth is that we have a God that wants to be known. So I think if we apply this a little bit, kind of what Isaiah is pushing us towards in the, in the idea of our immense, powerful, awesome God, he's saying, seek, seek him, seek God. And then he even says it here, he says, do things his way. He's saying, that, he's saying that seeking to know God involves calling on him, praying to him, and developing a relationship with him. I think when we're looking at this idea, we're looking at out of Isaiah right here, of, of the people he's describing, those who seek God are persistent. They stick to it. In the good and the bad, and when things are difficult, they still seek God. I love how the message puts it. It says, let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. Being persistent in that pursuit of seeking God. At the same time, he's saying, do things God's way, not your way. So practically, the, the, the way that we do this is, is, is think of like when you're taking advice or maybe you're trying to make a decision. There's a lot of big decisions in life. There's a lot of people trying to speak into uh, uh, how you're doing things. You know, maybe you're making a decision and ask yourself, is, God's, is this God's truth or someone else's truth? Am I seeking what God wants me to do here or am I seeking just the advice of somebody else? Now, sometimes you can have somebody that will give you godly advice, certainly. But the point is we come back, and and even the theme of this whole series, come back to God's Word. And to be able to do that, we got to spend time in God's Word. we got to read it daily. we got to be chewing on it and thinking about it and and taking it in. So ask yourself, is this God's truth or someone else's truth? We start by reading God's Word, then we make our judgments. When when you're thinking about making your judgment, think of things like the news. That's everybody's everybody's favorite ones right now. Or think of Facebook, the things you're taking in or maybe even putting out on Facebook. Or in the public, the, the, the things that, that are out there in the public lens. So you take, say, say to yourself, am I taking in God's truth, God's thoughts, God's ways, or someone else's? And we do this by spending time with God in prayer and in his word. And Isaiah encourages us, don't Don't wait. Now is the time to do that. There's a sense of urgency. You can start today. It doesn't matter how you walked in the door this morning. God wants you to open his word and find his truth for your life. You don't need a special magical way to read God's word. You don't have to be a pastor to start searching that unsearchable aspect of God. You don't have to to, to be a holy man to, to, to start coming after and trying to think and get your head around who God is and what he means to you. You can start right where you are, however you came in that door. From here, in all of God's power and vastness, the, the passage moves on and we find our third point. God has revealed the greatest mystery of all. 
his plan to redeem all of creation. We're talking about God's mystery and what he's doing and and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God has revealed the greatest mystery of all, his plan to redeem all of creation. Isaiah actually starts to unravel the mystery in just a few chapters ahead of this. If you flip back a page or two to Isaiah 53, if you want to look at Isaiah 53 with me, I think this is really cool. This is not the only place in Scripture, but Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, now pay attention to some of these words and try to get your mind around what it's describing. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our affirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced. Listen to those weird. He was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. As you read that, you can probably start imagining the the he or his that he's talking about. Also like how Colossians puts it. Colossians says, I have become its servant by the commission of God. This is Paul speaking to the church at Colossae, saying, I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So he's talking, Paul's saying, I'm going to reveal scripture to you, the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Isaiah started to reveal this this idea that God was going to redeem all of creation through Jesus Christ. Isaiah starts to unpack the greatest mystery of all. And that mystery, like Paul is talking about here, is how God has redeemed all of, all of creation, us and, and, and everything he created through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And he's revealed that to us. And why is this a mystery? You say, you're like, it's not really a mystery. I know who Jesus is. Why is this a mystery? Isaiah is kind of getting at the point. You would think that the king of Jews would be born into royalty, right? Like the guy that would come to save everything would be like a high up king, like maybe a knight with armor and like really powerful and be able to lead charging armies to to slay his enemies. And, And you would think that's how like the plan would be to save all of humankind. You would think that maybe he would sit on a throne or maybe he would have power and money and renown. People would know who he is. But Isaiah is getting at the point that he was a suffering servant. He wasn't anything special to look at. He didn't come riding on power. He wasn't about coercion. 
But Isaiah is painting this picture. Our king, King Jesus, came as a humble servant. That's a mystery. Our king, King Jesus, came as a humble servant. He was born in a manger to a virgin. He grew up as a carpenter. And he challenged the world's understanding of power and coercion. You see, the mystery is in the fact that God did it this way. That makes no sense to us. If you were to start tomorrow and you're going to make a campaign to to save the whole world, you would probably start building an army or trying to, right? You would think, how can we have enough power to influence people or enough money to, to buy the tools and the means that we could do that? But God said, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to provide a suffering servant to die for all of mankind. My own Son, the way that God did it makes no sense to us. So to apply this just a little bit as I start thinking about wrapping up is is we look at the why. The reason that God did it this way, the reason that it's a mystery and he he did it from, from from humble circumstances is to make a wretch his treasure to make me a wretch, to make us the wretches that we are, his treasure. Of all of his attributes, his his unknowableness, his his amazing size, and, and the things that we can't get our heads around, and all of those attributes, perhaps most of all, his love is immeasurable. His love is deep. And the best part about that is that he loved us. He sent Christ to show us that. Colossians 1.27, Paul reveals the mystery of Christ. When we follow Christ, when we say, you know what, I can't do it my way, I want to do it your way, and we follow Christ, Christ lives in us. Christ lives in us. And when Christ lives in us, this mystery starts working itself out, and we should stop living to do good things for God. And we should allow Christ to live in us. That's how we truly are changed. Instead of trying to do good things for God, we allow Christ, that mystery in our hearts, in our lives, when we follow him, to start living in and through us. To kind of drive this this illustration home, I started thinking about one of my favorite things in life. Anybody like coffee? Anybody get a cup of coffee when you came in this morning? But I started thinking about coffee, and this is the difference between uh, living, doing good things for Christ and living with Christ in you. You see, if you bring the, the ingredients to coffee together, like water is just water, and then you have beans or, or, or then you grind them up and you have coffee grounds. But when, when, you get, when you get the water and the coffee grounds together and you start percolating them and you make, or you do drip coffee, however you do your coffee, maybe you're real fancy, you do like a press or something, but when you put those together together, It's no longer water and coffee beans or coffee grounds. It's coffee. Because water by itself is water. The coffee by itself is coffee. But together, the grounds by themselves are are grounds. But you bring them together and then you have coffee. In a way, the nature of all that has been changed. And I love coffee a whole lot better than I love coffee grounds. And I love coffee a whole lot better than I love just water, right? I probably drink more coffee than I do water. But that's what he's talking about here when he's saying that Christ lives in us. He changes who we are in the way that we live. Like coffee. 
And he also, when he's in us, he will accomplish the things that we cannot accomplish. When we live a Christ-filled life, we no longer live for ourselves. Because even if we're trying to do good things for God, we still might be trying to live for ourselves. But when he lives in us and then through us and out of us, we no longer live for ourselves but for others like Christ did. And I think the key to this is to surrender. To surrender to what Christ has for you. That's how this whole humbleness before God of who he is and what he's created and and the way that he does things, that's that humbleness and saying, God, I need you to live in me. I need you to live through me. And when we surrender, like Isaiah is talking about, about here, we seek him and all that he is to do it his way and not our way. So as I conclude, I ask that everybody would bow their heads and close their eyes. If you just bow your head and close your eyes right where you're at. 